Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with James Koplenberg, the Charles Warren Professor of American History at Harvard University. His book, Toward Democracy, The Struggle for Self-Rule in European and American Thought, published Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with James Koplenberg, the Charles Warren Professor of American History at Harvard University. His book, Toward Democracy, The Struggle for Self-Rule in European and American Thought, published by Oxford University Press, is a topic of this show. Koplenberg provides a detailed and sweeping intellectual history of ideas that are at the heart of the democratic process. He traces the features of democracy beginning with ancient Athens and Rome to revolutionary America and Europe to the challenge of the American Civil War. He examines the conflict-fraught process of applying the principles of deliberation, pluralism, and reciprocity in establishing a form of government in which popular sovereignty, autonomy, and equality would be realized. Drawing from the works of multiple religious and enlightenment thinkers, in placing ideas within cultural and often violent political upheavals, Kloppenberg challenges us to reflect on the unfulfilled promise of American democracy. Here is my conversation with James Kloppenberg. Let me introduce you to the author, James Kloppenberg. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Toward Democracy is a big book, but before we get into it, tell us the background of what moved you to write this book in such an expansive way? Well, I had written a book, my first book actually, was a study of the rise of progressivism in the U.S. and social democracy in Europe from 1870 to 1920. And when I finished that book, which was published in 1986, I was torn between coming forward in time to the present and going back to try to make sense of the origins of democratic ideas and the reasons why the United States and different European nations had diverged so much from each other. And I continued exploring both of those for about a decade before I decided that I really wanted to follow the story back to the ancient world. And so this is an attempt to identify the roots of self-government and then to follow the path all the way through from classical Greece up through the period when democracy does emerge as uh, an almost universal ideal in the Western world. Now, democracy is a big idea, and I, we all think we know what it means. And what, what, do we, what does it mean? Well, I think it's a difficult question to answer, which is why the book is so long, but it's a combination of institutions such as majority rule, uh, rule of law, representative government, and also cultural preconditions. And I think those cultural preconditions receive much less attention than they deserve. And so I focus a lot of attention on the importance of what I call the ethic of reciprocity, the willingness to lose to your worst enemy. Because so often in human history, in our own day, in fledgling democracies, you find that when your enemy wins an election, instead of saying, okay, we'll win next time, people go to war. And that's whether it's a religious division or an ethnic division or a difference of um, position on a ruler. Uh, There are so many grounds on which democracies can fracture and have fractured, and that underlying commitment to the process itself, I think, doesn't get nearly the attention it deserves. Well, it seems like a lot of people think, we think in terms of democracy, is a static thing. Mm -hmm. You either have it or you don't have it. But the way you talk about it in your book, you talk about it as a process, that it's ongoing, that it's continually being renegotiated. It's never, you never get to it. It's always, you're always a little short of it. Right. It generates 
dissatisfaction, it generates unhappiness as much as it generates satisfaction and happiness. Because whatever stage you reach, the fact that there is always conflict in democracy means that whatever the source of that dissatisfaction is has an opportunity to express itself. And so as new conflicts are generated, new forms of dissatisfaction appear and a new goal emerges. And so that expectation that you would have a stable democracy is itself, it seems to me, from the historical record, unfounded. There's never been a stable democracy, and I don't think there ever will be. So are we, like, committed now to gridlock forever? No. I think that's one of the striking things about American democracy, as demoralizing as this election is. And I do think that the Republican nominee is without precedent among major party nominees. There have been other moments when American politics has been as fraught and as polarized as ours is. In the 1790s, when the first party system was opening up, Americans were calling each other traitors, they were accusing each other of treason, and the language was just about as explosive as the language that we see today. And some of the personal accusations were as venomous as we uh, are seeing today. So what has, has happened in the earlier moments of particular polarization and crisis is that there was something that led to a kind of rapprochement between the contending parties. In 1800, when Jefferson is elected, he declares in his inaugural address, we're all Federalists, we're all Republicans. And I think he means it. I don't think this is um, being cagey or strategic. I think he genuinely wants Americans at that early moment to realize that they are all committed to this new republic, and they all should see that what what keeps them together is more basic and lasting than what uh, divides them. So that does launch the United States into what becomes for a time almost a one-party system because the Federalist Party vanishes and then there are new disagreements that emerge. But the one time when that didn't happen was the 1850s, which gives us the Civil War. And one of my arguments, um, which is hardly uh, encouraging for the state of our current democracy, is that the United States has never really recovered from the Civil War that the distinctions between the Confederacy and the Union are still at the bottom of many of the cultural divides in 2016. And part of the larger argument of the book, uh, going all the way back to the uh, ancient world, is that civil war is the death of democracy, that once you have had a civil war, it's very hard to breathe life into an ethic of reciprocity because people don't see the people who win an election as simply people with whom they disagree. They see them as the enemy, as the Confederacy did the Union, and as both sides, I think, to a certain degree, have done ever since. It's been very hard to get agreement on fundamentally questions of race, but on many other questions uh, between the two cultures of what was the Union and what was the Confederacy. Yeah, throughout your book, you put democracy in relationship, you place democracy in relationship to the possibility of violence. And it's either, it's almost like it's a choice. You're either going to have violence or you're going to have a democratic process that is fraught with difficulty. Mm -hmm. And there's no, and it, we're going to continue to be going through the cycle. But what you're just saying is also once you unleash violence, it's very difficult to put it back in the bottle. Right. That's a genie. You can't get back in the bottle. Absolutely. And that happened again and again and again from the ancient world up through the 18th century. And my book really comes into focus with wars of religion in the 16th century. <clears throat> and my argument is that those unprecedentedly murderous wars of religion are the backdrop for the decisions that are made in the 18th century in the United States to set up the kind of structures that are put in place with the Constitution, that the founders were powerfully aware of how many different ways popular governments had failed in preceding Uh, centuries. And as a result, they were trying to put in as many institutional safeguards as they could so that things would not um, spin out of control into violence. And all you have to do is look across the Atlantic to the French Revolution, which originates in many of the same ideas and ideals that animate the uh, American Revolution and the constitutional uh, moment. And yet they go terribly wrong, and it's impossible for the French to put the 
pieces of the puzzle back together after the violence of the French Revolution. So I do think that our smug dismissal of 18th century caution is often grounded in a faulty understanding or a misunderstanding of that preceding experience of violence, that when people saw how terribly wrong things could go when the people were empowered, they wanted to be sure that these structures were sufficiently uh, durable that they could endure if something like a dangerous mob emerged. Now, what's, uh, what I really liked about your book was the <clears> fact <throat> that you talk about the wars of religion you just mentioned, but you, put a, you really give a lot of weight to religious ideas, and I think you treat them very fairly. I think you really uh, sort of recover, I think, religious ideas in, in, in democracy and how it undergirds democracy. So can you talk a little bit about what are some of the, what are some of the religious ideas that really fed and made uh, democracy possible? One of the things that I think, again, most secular scholars don't appreciate was what a revolution uh, the ideas of Christianity were when they emerged. And because during the early medieval period, the early emphasis on equality and um, brotherhood was replaced by an extremely hierarchical set of institutions in, in Roman Catholicism. But the Gospels themselves are actually very egalitarian texts. And so when the Reformation comes along in the 16th century and those early ideas are recovered, it results in a kind of revaluation of the capacity of ordinary people to reason, to make decisions, and that helps undergird the first experiments with um, popular government. And when the early Puritans come to North America in the 1620s and 1630s, they bring with them this conception of the capacity, not of all human beings, but of the saved. And that's part of the irony of democracy, that it is people who are committed to a kind of exclusion of people who are not willing to live the kinds of lives that they think humans ought to live if they're following God's will. Their exclusion of those other people causes us in the 21st century to be unwilling to consider them Democrats. They're not liberal Democrats because they don't value toleration in the way that we do, but they do very much want to govern themselves. And so they set up these institutions of self-government, both in their church congregations and in their towns, and those institutions then mature in a way that give Americans, not only in New England, but in the Middle and Southern colonies as well, an experience of self-government that people in Europe simply do not have. So uh, you just brought something up that just triggered something in me, and the idea <clears throat> that we can have democracy, you can have democracy without liberalism. Right, and I think that's a big surprise to people. That will be one of the parts of the book that I think people will find very peculiar. There are many books now in early American history that uh, declare vociferously that there is no democracy in early America. And what they mean by that is that there is slavery, there is gender hierarchy, there is exclusion of people unlike the people who are making the rules, and all of that is true. But when a place like um, Rhode Island, the colony that Roger Williams founds, uh, declares itself a democracy, and when some of the early towns in New England in their founding charters declare themselves democracy, they mean quite self-consciously to say we're not going to follow the rules of anyone else. And often there's a sort of tagline at the end saying, insofar as these are in conformity with the king's will. But in fact, the king is on the other side of the ocean, and his representatives, his royal governors, as the 17th and then the 18th century unfolds, have less and less and less control over these representative institutions that operate in the colonies. So people develop this experience of working with representative government, even though the foundations of it, the terms on which it's grounded, are very different from our own. It's interesting that you, uh, you really give a lot of emphasis in your, throughout your book on the New England town meeting, and you kind of bring it up throughout. It seems like they kind of stumbled into it. It doesn't seem like they did not do it going, we're going to have a democracy. It was sort of, it just, they kind of stumbled into it. Well, it's the nature of congregationalism. It was the nature of the theology of the, the Calvinist revolution that gathered communities would make decisions for themselves. And this is one of the 
contradictions that actually bedevils the English Civil War because there is a tension between divine sovereignty and all of these Puritans coming to New England would have embraced the idea of divine sovereignty. They would have said God's will and God's law must rule. But on their everyday decision-making about who gets to build a fence where, what happens to the land, they made those rules themselves. And again, they were making them for a very small number of people. So they were making them in these small towns, in these congregations, and people who didn't want to abide by it were welcome to leave. They were welcome to go somewhere else. So it is the idea of a gathered community, I think, that enables people to begin experimenting with this idea of coming to a shared understanding. And that willingness to come to a shared understanding has a lot to do with their religious devotion. Um, they were not willing to place that kind of trust in people they considered unregenerate, people who were not saved. So it's, a, it's an irony. It's not an expected outcome. They intended, at least those who didn't characterize themselves as separating Puritans, those who were non-separating Puritans, ex- expected eventually that England would come along, that their purification would eventually transform the Church of England into something very different that would be more similar to what they were doing. They didn't expect that they were going to live the rest of their lives and into uh, the future in this howling wilderness of New England, um, completely separate from the, the old world. But they deliberately separated themselves from England so that they could embark on this quest for a purified culture that would govern itself. And each one of these towns independently um, came to that same conclusion. Now, you said also New England in contrast with what was happening in England and the protracted battle and uh, cultural and political upheaval to try to establish democracy in England. There was a lot, you talk a lot about that. There's a whole chapter on it. I think chapter three is about that. So, can you give for the listeners a little brief sketch of what, what happened in England with democracy? Yeah, this is something that most Americans in the 21st century know much less well than Americans used to know it because it was often the case that this story of the English Civil War and the run-up to it in the 1630s and then its failure with the, um, Cromwell and the Protectorate and then the re uh, reinvention, the restoration of the English monarchy in 1660, that was a story that American school children used to know. People don't know about it now. But the ideas that the Puritans brought with them to New England in the 17th century were ideas that a group of radicals in England, uh, who were called by their enemies the Levelers, advanced with just as much fervor as the Puritans did in New England. The difference is that the aristocracy and the monarchy were present and able to contest these ideas. And so whereas you have people like Roger Williams and Thomas Hooker in New England founding their own colonies, being the most prominent members of those colonies, in England people with very similar ideas are thrown in jail or they're executed because of the unwillingness to accept the rule of the monarchy. And so when the monarchy is restored in 1660, these ideas are pretty thoroughly snuffed out in England. And the recollection of leveler democracy in England is that it leads to war, it leads to anarchy, and then it leads to tyranny under Cromwell. And in the New England colonies, these are the ideas that people continue to cherish and to to hold dear when Roger Williams goes to England to renegotiate the charter for the colony of Rhode Island, uh, everything is falling apart in England. And he is in very close contact with the poet John Milton, who was a radical Puritan in England. And the, the, the contrast between the two of them and between other leveler leaders and people like Roger Williams could not be more stark. Those Puritans who come from New England back to England to fight the good fight with the levelers are executed. And those who leave to come back to New England, like Roger Williams, go back to positions of authority. So these same ideas are explosive and fail in England, and they're explosive and they end up generating these institutions that endure in the New World. Now, in New England, 
that the New England town meetings, the people who were living there, that they used the word democracy. Or is democracy, you talk about democracy being a term of derision. It was not, it wasn't highly regarded. Did the New Englanders use that term? And if they did, was it a positive thing or was it a negative thing? They did use the term. This was one of the surprises to me because, like everybody else in my generation, I was raised to think that democracy was a foreign concept in the 17th century, that everybody considered it to be akin to anarchy, which is the way it was conceived during the Middle Ages. But I was surprised to find that in many of these founding documents, the word democracy is used in a positive way to, de to designate the form of self-government that the colonists are putting in place. It's by no means universal, but it's also not absent. And part of this misunderstanding, I think, comes to us from the 1960s, because since the 1960s, there has been an assumption primarily within the academy, but I think more generally, that democracy means the constant engagement of the citizenry in public affairs. So participatory democracy of the sort that the new left had in mind in the 1960s comes to mean democracy. And from a fairly early date in the 18th century in what becomes the United States, towns and colonies have grown too large for everyone to gather in the same space. So from that point on, what remains distinctive about New England is that the towns remain small enough that people can still gather in public spaces and deliberate uh, as a body of the whole, at least the whole of white male property-owning citizens. But everywhere else, and increasingly even in the larger towns of New England, there's a realization that you simply have to have representatives in order to have a body that is not too large to be manageable. And so once representative government becomes the norm, people begin thinking this is somehow something other than democracy. And one of the central arguments in my book is that representative democracy is not a second best or bastardized form of democracy. It's a very authentic form of democracy because what happens in the process of selecting the people who are going to serve in government is that issues of public policy come into focus. People talk about them, usually less um, in, 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 in more sane ways than we're doing right now. But it concentrates the mind. It causes people to think about questions of, of public life. And then the people who are actually elected have as their responsibility to find what is in the common good. The assumption I think a lot of people have is that representation means if you're my representative, you should do what I want you to do. And a much older conception of representation that is certainly the dominant conception of representation in America in the 17th and 18th centuries is that the goal of the representative is to find the, co the common good the public interest, not the interest of any particular group of people, certainly not the interest of the representative himself, and it always was himself in those years. So this notion of what happens both through the process of electing a representative and in the process of serving as a representative is, I think, misunderstood in our own day when people expect that the purpose of the representative is to improve their own situation. And the idea was to find the general Good. You, at this point in your book, you start talking about a bunch, many uh, thinkers, including John Locke and his theory of self-government. You talk about Rousseau and the general will, which people interpreted differently what the general will is and how you figure out what the general will is. Uh, Hume, perfect, uh, co the perfect commonwealth. Adam Smith was self-mastery. Montesquieu was separation of powers. You really hit a lot of ideas that come together. And it's almost like, how do I ask a question that sort of encompasses all that? So I'm going to give you a chance to talk about what you think is important among all those thinkers. Okay. The purpose of those chapters is to indicate just how many different conceptions of self-government are on the table in the 17th and 18th century. The English Revolution of 1688, which is often described as the glorious revolution, it was described at the time as a happy revolution, is from my perspective, better understood as a coup d'etat because one ruling oligarchy of Catholics is replaced by a ruling oligarchy of Protestants. And that's about all that happens. Uh, there really isn't very much of a change in the mechanisms of government. And the aristocracy governs England from 1688 until 
middle of the 19th century uh, with very little uh, check from the House of Commons. So what's happening in England is that the ideas that we come to think of as the Enlightenment are becoming more central. But the English Enlightenment and the American Enlightenment are ideas that emphasize the importance of reason, they emphasize the importance of public debate, but they're not conceived as anti-religious. Now, slightly after the English Enlightenment emerges, a more radical form of Enlightenment emerges on the continent in, um, among Dutch thinkers, among some French thinkers, who really view all forms of religion as the enemy of reason. And so in the more radical forms of Enlightenment, this divide begins to open up between skeptics who doubt whether or not it's possible for um, monarchs to govern in the interest of the people, but who also doubt whether it's possible ever to have knowledge that is stable. And that way of thinking makes it very hard to generate self-government because it undercuts the confidence that the more moderate Enlightenment thinkers have in the capacity of human beings to, human beings to reason. And so part of my argument is that the most radical of these non-skeptical ideas of enlightenment, that is Rousseau's idea of the general will, is a conception that is fully compatible with the forms of institution building that the American founders undertake in the late 18th century, and that several of the founders, some of the most prominent founders, notably John Adams and James Wilson, who's now forgotten but who was one of the most pivotal figures in Philadelphia in 1787, were both avid readers of Rousseau's social contract and thought he had identified the most important concept of representative government, which is that the representatives have to have as their objective the identification of the general will, the common good of the, of the people. And that, I think, is going to be a, a, an argument that is likely to be controversial uh, because it's unexpected, but uh, it's a way, I think, of showing how much the American Revolution and the Constitution-making process had in common with the early stages of the French Revolution. It's when the French Revolution spins out of control and becomes a civil war that people like John Adams turn against it and write in a kind of vitriolic language about how dangerous this French Revolution has become. You contrast what's going on in, in Europe, um, the Enlightenment thinkers, the revolutions, in, in the French Revolution, what's going on in England, too, What's happening with American thinkers, and one of the things that you argue is the American thinkers, people like Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, these, uh, these thinkers were not, they were involved in the political process. They were not just theorists, you know, speaking from on high. And you talk about how uh, theorists in, in Europe were not as engaged in the rough and tumble of politics. Yeah, whenever, one makes that, whenever anyone makes that argument, um, Within the academic community, people get nervous because it sounds like a form of American exceptionalism, that we're somehow special, that our founders are different from other thinkers. And I don't mean necessarily to um, say that the United States is any more distinctive than Britain or France or um, Switzerland or Iceland or any other nation. Every nation is exceptional in that sense. But simply as a matter of description of historical accuracy, the people who were the most important figures in the American Enlightenment were in many instances also the most important figures in their colonies. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson are two of the founders of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, which is a scholarly organization. They're also the second and third presidents of the United States. There's no equivalent to that in any European nation of people who are among the most important thinkers also being those with the greatest amount of political authority. And what that does, I think, is to give them a kind of experience of and realistic assessment of what has to happen in order for popular government to work. People have to be willing to compromise. They have to be willing to commit themselves to the process of give and take. And part of what goes wrong in France is that there is no experience with that kind of frustration of dealing with people who disagree with you and simply agreeing to disagree and going forward. So that when the disagreements become pronounced in France, the revolution turns violent. Because the assumption is if you are disagreeing with the revolution, you are not only a counter-revolutionary, you are an enemy of the state and you should be put to death. 
And in America, when people disagree with the revolution, when they side with England, they leave. They go to Canada. They go back to England. They go other places in the world, as my colleague Maya Jasanoff has They go to the frontier. They go a lot of different places, but they don't come back to power in the uh, the new nation. And in France, at the end of the revolution, Napoleon takes power, and when Napoleon uh, loses power, the monarchy is restored. And I think it's important to ask Americans to reflect on that briefly, because it would be as if the British monarchy returned and came back to power in the United States. We can't even conceive of that. We can't imagine that the opponents of the revolution would come back to power. And yet again and again in European history, the end of the English Civil War, at the end of the French Revolution, during the Wars of Revolution much earlier than that, those who had been displaced from power come back to power with a vengeance. And they reestablish their authority through a kind of violent purging of their enemies, enemies of a sort that we have only seen once in the United States, and that was in the Civil War. Okay, so you're talking about America being affected by the Scottish Enlightenment, religious revivals, over 100 years of self-government, uh, the belief in benevolence, but there was also the negative aspects of this too, uh, fear of the rabble, Catholicism, slavery, and the reality of human depravity. That's a, a brew from which you'd think it would be very hard to build a, a set of, uh, of stable representative institutions. Anti-Catholicism is a very powerful unifying force in the Protestant-dominated 18th century English colonies. And because so many Americans are Catholic now, it's hard, I think, to conjure up just how, how deep-seated this fear and hatred of Catholicism was. And as John McGreevy has made clear in, in his study of American Catholicism, up until the late 19th century, it was not incomprehensible why Protestants were uh, so troubled by Catholicism, because there was, long before the French Revolution, but certainly after the French Revolution, a very self-conscious effort on the part of the papacy and different national Catholic traditions to restore Catholicism to a position of authority, not just to a place in nations, but to restore it as the established religion. And since Protestants were committed to the end of that regime, why the Protestant Reformation happened, uh, Catholicism looked like a threat. And one of the ironies of the late 18th century is that uh, much of the revolutionary fervor in the 1760s and 1770s came in New England, at least, from people's fear that the Church of England was going to send a bishop to America. And the threat of a bishop seemed to them to promise a kind of backsliding into the worst kinds of hierarchical power of Roman Catholicism. And then when France becomes the ally that makes it possible for the United States to defeat Britain, Catholic France. It's very hard for many American Protestants to wrap their minds around that. And that actually helps lead to the fissure of the 1790s, the first party system in America, when the pro-French and the anti-French factions, the Jeffersonian Republicans who are pro-French and the Federalists who are um, Anglophilic, anti-French, are at each other's throats, a lot of that rhetoric has to do with this lingering anti-Catholicism, even though the revolution itself is anti-Catholic. So these religious issues, part of the purpose of the book is to make clear to people just how central these religious issues were in the 17th and 18th centuries, and how the fear of, as you said, the rabble, was wrapped up in this fear that the rabble would lead us back to a kind of warfare every bit as murderous as the 16th century wars of religion. So even though there's sufficient confidence in the capacity of the people to govern, there's also a residual fear of what can happen if the rabble come to power without constraints. And that balance between a fervent desire that I think people even like John Adams and James Madison had for self-rule, for the rule of the people, it balanced against an equally deep anxiety that, if given power without constraints, 
the people will kill each other. Now, one thing you do here is you move on to the American Revolution. We think of the American Revolution as being sort of everybody is in agreement. They know exactly what they're fighting for. And you sort of go after that because you have a situation where the southern colonies in New England are sort of at odds with each other. You've got the urban, the rural, the poor, the rich. You've got localism. What, the, what is the meaning of the common good? Uh, and also the conviction that education among the elites, that education is necessary for virtue so that you can have a democracy. And the significant place of religion is going to play in this new nation. And then there's this wart in all this, which is slavery. Because as, yeah. as you're advocating for self-government, you're denying self-government to a group of people. Right. And part of what makes that division so intense is the awareness. And one of the passages I quote is an exchange from John Adams and Abigail Adams back and forth about how intolerable it is that the American colonists, at the same time they are complaining about being enslaved by King George, are themselves enslaving Africans who are in a much, obviously, much worse condition. And it's than, a language. Yeah. The yeah. language of slavery. Right. They could have used some other word. Right. And it's, it's, the language is even more pointed in the draft that Jefferson writes of the Declaration of Independence than in the, 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 the published document. But it is, it is quite striking, and, and some New Englanders are, are sickened um, by the use of the, the term slavery almost as much as they are by the institution itself because they see the contradiction that these paying taxes is not slavery. We know what slavery looks like, and it's what's going on in the southern colonies. So that division is extremely deep, and there would not have been a constitution if the anti-slavery forces at the Constitutional Convention had persisted because the states in 1787 of the Deep South, notably uh, Georgia and South Carolina, had made it clear that if the issue even came up, they would leave. Uh, they would not participate in the Constitutional Convention. So this division is present in the 1770s, but in the 1770s it's possible to paper it over because what they have in common is this animosity to Britain. In, in the, just about the first public speech that Abraham Lincoln ever gave in 1838, he looks back at the 1760s and 1770s and notes quite accurately that it was this animosity alone that enabled Americans to form themselves into a nation because the depth of the disagreements between the slave colonies and the colonies that were already uh, moving toward abolishing slavery was so deep that they never would have been able to agree to form a single nation were it not for the fact that they were opposed to British rule. And so no sooner does um, the revolution succeed and Britain is expelled than these divisions begin to become clear. And so they're clear throughout the period of the Articles of Confederation until the Constitutional Convention, and at the Constitutional Convention they would have scuttled the entire um, project had the northern delegates not agreed simply that we would bracket that question. We're going to... um, put an end to the slave trade in the future, but we're not going to talk about slavery. So the architects of the American Constitution, uh, James Madison and James Wilson, and I have to say I hadn't heard very much about James Wilson until I read your book, uh, which is kind of embarrassing. No, almost (laughs) no one has. I mean, he's not on any of the currency, right? I mean, all the other founders have memorials, they have monuments to them. He's one of the first Supreme Court justices. He's a very learned and very important figure, but he dies a disgraced debtor because, like some of the other founders, he goes heavily into real estate speculation and loses his shirt, uh, and so he dies in disgrace. But in the run-up to the revolution itself, he writes one of the most important pamphlets in Pennsylvania, Then, during the debates at the Constitution, only Madison is a more important figure in the debates than James Wilson. And then after the the Constitutional Convention uh, closes and the people who are in favor of the Constitution fan out across the colonies trying to uh, persuade voters that they should ratify, 
the Constitution. Wilson's speech is that he gives outside the, the, the Constitution Hall in Philadelphia is probably the most widely reprinted speech, more, much more widely reprinted than the Federalist Papers are. And it is a speech in which the idea of Rousseau's general will is in practically every line. That's what drives the speech, that this architecture, Wilson argues, is going to enable us to slice through all the particular interests that are at war with each other and find that one interest that we all share and through this process of representation and deliberation, we'll be able to identify and advance that common good. It's an absolutely brilliant formulation of the reasons why a federal government is appropriate for this, uh, this quest to find the common good. And so part of what the, the book is designed to do is to rehabilitate James Wilson, not the individual James Wilson, but the ideas that he puts on the table because they are extremely persuasive at the time and I think they are one of the best defenses of representative government that has been written. Madison Wilson uh, write uh, the Constitution, they're architects of the Constitution, uh, and they're they're having to deal with a bunch of issues like uh, the rich versus poor, debtor creditors, uh, farmers versus merchants, uh, civic virtue versus personal freedom, religious freedom, I mean, minority rights, progressive taxation. And what really struck me was that they were really concerned about income, about inequality, economic inequality. Yes, yes. Very early. Right. And that's part of what drives Adams into the revolution in the first place was the anger that he felt, this son of a shoemaker, at the way that the English aristocracy lorded it over ordinary Americans and New Englanders thought of themselves as being as virtuous as any people in the world, and for people to treat them as if they were scum was just impossible for them to endure. But following Montesquieu, all of the founders, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Jefferson, Madison, all thought that unless citizens had rough economic inequality, rough economic equality, democracy would just not work you were going to have something that would devolve into aristocracy or monarchy because democracy only worked when people were, in terms of their material conditions, roughly equal. Now, that also seems like a sham when you're looking at the southern colonies because they depend on slavery. But the conception of the citizenry in the southern colonies is raced white in the same way that it's gendered male. And in many of the southern colonies, it's no more thinkable to include slaves than it is to include women in your category of citizens. Now, that's all run already under assault in the rest of the new nation. And so that tension begins as early as the revolution matures through the 1780s, and by the time we're into the 19th century, um, we're already seeing the seeds of what would become the anti-slavery crusade. But in the South, and this is one of the reasons why I spend as much time in the book as I do on Jefferson's little book, Notes on the State of Virginia, even though many slave owners like Jefferson understood just how poisonous slavery was, not just for the slaves for whom it was a living hell, but also for the slave owners because it schooled them and their children in these patterns of despotism that were indefensible that were the antithesis of the ethic of benevolence that you mentioned that was so central in late 18th century America. So although the more thoughtful of them, like Jefferson, were aware of just how damaging this was to what they knew democracy required, their lives depended on this slave system, and they were unwilling to end it. So we've got differences that arise during the American Revolution that carry over into the Constitution and the ratification, the ratification of the Constitution. So the, uh, the Constitution has no Bill of Rights, but it does allow for amendments. So what, what do you think about that process? T talk about that process of ratifying the con Constitution. This, this is one of the endlessly fascinating puzzles of American history, and it's a question about which reasonable people will continue to disagree. My colleague in the Harvard Law School, Mike Klarman, has just published a book about the Constitution and ratification process in which he resuscitates the argument that Charles Beard made in the early, early 20th century to the effect that the Constitution is essentially rigged against ordinary people by wealthy and powerful people who want to keep poor in their place and 
secure the wealth and privileges that they enjoy. I don't think the record shows that. I mean, it'll be interesting for readers to compare our two books because I think the, the evidence um, points one direction as I read it and it points another direction as Mike Lerman and as many other historians have read it. There certainly are people who go into the Constitutional Convention with that idea in mind. There are certainly people in the 1790s, and I would say Alexander Hamilton, despite his um, recent celebrity thanks to the uh, musical, is one of those people who wants an interlocking directorate of financially secure people, bankers in particular, to make decisions because they trust those people more than they trust farmers and ordinary people. But I think that on balance, most of the people who were involved in these debates did not want to see that happen. They wanted to see a system of representative government in which every citizen had a voice and every citizen had an opportunity to vote for and to make his voice known in the debates about, uh, about politics. Now, as this process gets underway, divisions open up And one of the striking things to me, and again, one of the documents that I try to pay particular attention to, is a document that James Madison writes for himself on the eve of the uh, opening of the Constitutional Convention called The Vices of the Political System of the United States. And in that document, Madison lays out all those fissures that you talked about between um, rich and poor, but also between uh, different regions, between people who follow different leaders, between members of different religious groups, between tradesmen and merchants. And the point of this little um, meditation, which serves as the rough draft basically for most of the speeches and essays that Madison um, produces in the next few years, the point of it is to say politics is complicated. It's not just rich against poor. And I think what we're seeing playing out in our own day in 2016 is should remind us that it's not just economic interest that drives politics. People have religious convictions. They have cultural convictions that in some cases completely obliterate their economic self-interest in terms of how they behave politically. Madison saw all of that. And it wasn't that he simply thought each of these would cancel each other out. He thought that this process of filtering and sifting opinions and preferences would yield a body of decision makers through the process of electing representatives, a body of decision makers who could see beyond narrow self-interest to the good of the whole. And the entire architecture of the Constitution, as he and Wilson conceived of it, was designed to do just that. It's not possible really to think of any two figures as the decisive figures in writing the Constitution, as important as Madison and Wilson were, because nobody got what he wanted from the Constitutional Commission. Everybody had to compromise on something that he, Madison to the end, wanted to have a national veto over state laws. That was never going to happen from day one. He never gave up on it. But he knew that there was no way the Constitution would be accepted if that were part of it. He was opposed to a Bill of Rights for the same reason that James Wilson was. They reasoned that a Bill of Rights made sense against the king, which is where Bills of Rights emerged in the first place. If you had an all-powerful monarch, then you'd better secure your rights against that monarch. In the absence of a monarchy, who are you securing your rights against? Because all authority originates with you, the people, so you're defending your rights against yourselves? That's incoherent. But as a matter of politics, there were enough state constitutions that had built bills of rights into them that those states were proving unwilling to go along with a constitution that did not include bills of rights. So finally, Jefferson convinces Madison, look, I get your point, but this is just not going to fly unless we put these bills of rights in. And so Madison reluctantly agrees that first time the Congress meets, we're going to present these rights, this bill of rights, and we'll go forward with that. So it is, like so many features of the Constitution, a compromise among people with very different points of view who agree only that they will accept this document, even though they, in some ways, can't stand each other's positions on other issues. 
Well, then we get into, uh, you talk about the American Revolution and the Constitution, that process, and then you go to the French Revolution, which is the next big thing that happens. And you talk about two delusions of the French revolutionaries. Uh, one delusion was that enlightened rationality would bring harmony uh, rather than practices that were rooted in the Christian traditions of the people and economic recklessness. And there were two collisions, uh, misreading uh, the misgivings about the church uh, with loss of faith and a cultural of corporatism against the values of the individual. So there were multiple problems with the French Revolution, uh, regional uh, rights versus privileges, uh, no tradition of democratic deliberation like the New England town meetings, no history of self-government. Most people are living in, in rural France. They're now living in cosmopolitan areas. Education and uh, the understanding of the common will. But I thought that this chapter was brilliant and really concise about talking about the French Revolution. Then we have the reign of terror, which is the idea that we're going to impose democracy from above. In other words, we're going to be forcing you, forcing you to be free. And that's the point at which that phrase, which comes from Rousseau, comes to be taken as a warrant for the guillotine. And Rousseau never saw the guillotine. Marie Antoinette was actually an avid reader of Rousseau. To blame Rousseau for the worst excesses of the terror is anti-historical, but it happens. Robespierre is constantly invoking uh, Rousseau at the height of the terror as justification for executing people who are taken to be enemies of the revolution. But it seems to me as though the success of the American experiment, such as it is, and there are some major flaws, slavery being only the most obvious of those flaws, the success of the American Revolution and Constitution writing process is made particularly clear when you put it in the context of the English experience and the French experience. Because the American example looms so large in France in 1789 when the revolution starts. Many of the people who engage in the process of reforming the monarchy imagine themselves to be doing just what American revolutionaries were doing. And it's the unwillingness of not just the monarchy, but the Catholic Church's hierarchy and the aristocracy to engage in any kind of compromise at all that basically dooms the revolution to this course of extremism that ends in civil war at home and war against the aristocracies and monarchies that reign France. So that's part of the reason it seems to me a tragic outcome. I don't know how it could have been otherwise because everybody in France digs in their heels within the first year of the opening of the revolution. And it's very hard to see how you would have gone forward in the way that the American Revolution went forward when almost everybody who is involved has not had the experience of doing this kind of horse trading that goes into the uh, decision-making process in the United States. And everybody sees the people they have to negotiate with as inferior to themselves as having no legitimacy. And so that ethic of reciprocity that I see as so crucial is simply missing in France. It's never present from the beginning, and it's not present at the end. So what is the influence of the French Revolution on Americans' ideas of democracy? It's fascinating to watch the opening of the first party system in the United States because it's unthinkable without the French Revolution. There's a new book coming out by Matthew Hale on this question, and it's, I mentioned earlier the, uh, the venom in the rhetoric of the 1790s, and that's sparked by people's either enthusiasm for or opposition to the French Revolution. And as the revolution begins to get bloodier and bloodier, the people who are in favor of the French Revolution, like Jefferson and his followers, eventually have to back off and say, well, that's not quite what we had in mind. But the, at, its, at its height in the mid-1790s, this sense that everything that we've accomplished in America is now at stake in France gives to the rhetoric of the time a kind of heightened intensity that comes close to ripping the nation apart. And I think 
Jefferson deserves a lot of credit for damping that down during his presidency, and then Madison following him continues the, to do the same thing. What I noticed, what you talked about, that the French attempt to establish a wholly secular government and could not tolerate any differences. You had to be in total agreement with the revolution. Right. And uh, if you weren't, you were an enemy of the revolution. Right. And this is a tradition in France that French historians have been aware of for quite a while, that the tradition of the French Catholic Church is hierarchical. It's top-down. There's no room for disagreement. The wars of religion essentially um, expunge Protestantism in France. The idea that legitimate disagreement is an important part of politics is an idea that doesn't really have very much salient in France. It is a top-down um, system run by the, the king and by the aristocracy. And even though there is a, a, a faltering tradition of feudal obligations that run in both directions, it's mostly a top-down uh, operation. And there's no room for popular involvement. There's no lay engagement in the Catholic Church. There's no uh, civic engagement uh, in, the, in the public sphere as well. And so once these two forces of uh, a secular enlightenment and uh, a Catholic Church that is not really as weak as the uh, enlightenment champions thought it was, collide with each other, the result is civil war. And once, it become, once the revolution becomes a civil war, it's very hard to see how it could have ended with less than the amount of bloodshed it had. Okay, we're going to go on here to um, to Lincoln, which is sort of, you end your book sort of in at the Civil War period, around that period, and about how democracy failed on its promises with slavery, women's rights, also women. Um, and you compare and contrast, which I thought was interesting, Lincoln with Robespierre in France, which I thought was an interesting comparison. I would never have put those people on the same page. Talk about how they were alike and how they were different. Right. I think that the similarities are that they both have to deal with a nation at war and with deep, deep disagreement. I mean, there's deep disagreement in the Union as well as there is in the Confederacy or between the Union and the Confederacy. And Lincoln suspends habeas corpus. He takes steps that some people considered to be unconstitutional, and there was a serious challenge to his presidency toward the end of his first term. And so he's hardly the universal hero that we tend to think of him today as having been. And yet his rhetoric as the war continues remains to my mind, astonishingly moderate and conciliatory. If you go back and read the speeches that are the best known, the Gettysburg Address and the Second Inaugural, both of them are filled with invocations of shared guilt for the carnage of the war, of shared responsibility for the travesty to, of human rights that slavery represented, of his hope for reconciliation after the war. And we'll never know whether the Union and the Confederacy could have been stitched back together effectively had Lincoln lived. But we do know that in his absence, there was no one who could make that happen. And so after the brief experiment with Reconstruction, essentially the North abandons the South. The South reinstitutes a regime of white supremacy that is almost as cruel as slavery was. And that regime of Jim Crow endures until the civil rights movement. So the book ends where it does because I don't think there are any shortages of ideas about what democracy should constitute by the late 19th century. I think in the uh, writings of John Stuart Mill in particular, of his friend uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, who's also an important figure in the book, and then in the writings and speeches of Lincoln, we have as clear a statement of what democracy requires as you're going to find. And Mill's last book is the book he writes with his uh, wife, Harriet Taylor Mill, who has died by the time this book is published, about the subjection of women and calling for a really robust conception of women's rights. So at that point, it seems to me the ideas are on the table. The reform movements have been put in place to end slavery, to bring equal rights to women to end the regime of the aristocracy in France and in Britain and to replace them with uh, civic equality and, uh, and democratic government. 
But in the United States, this legacy of racial hatred is such that putting together the kind of reconciled sections in a nation with a common purpose that Lincoln had in mind is simply not possible. And the book ends with the same kind of somber finding that I think the best book on the late 19th century United States, David Blight's Race and Reunion, ends with, and that is that the country was put back together on the backs of African Americans. And the North and the South agreed to forget that the Civil War was fought over the issue of slavery, and they pretended that it was simply a cultural clash and that it had been a terrible mistake and that both sections had blundered into it. And now if we could just forget all about that, we could go back and ignite the Magnolia myth of of a, of a antebellum South where everybody was happy and the slaves were contented, and we can get white supremacy back where it belongs and go forward. And once that happens, once the Civil War ends but ends on those terms, I argue that it's very hard for the original ideals of democracy to come to fruition because what you have instead is a white men's democracy. And one could make the argument that there are many Americans in 2016 who believe that that's what we should still have. So that kind of brings us to today, and I want to talk a little bit about, uh, in the next few minutes, the implications of your work uh, for how we look at democracy that we're experiencing right now. Uh, how does our idea of democracy or how we think about democracy now as contemporary people living in, through this election, what democracy means? What does it mean for us today? How different is it from the founders? And this tension that I see throughout your book, uh, the tension between the common good and individual freedom. Yeah. Well, I think different people have different assessments of the presidency of Ronald Reagan, but I think that when he asked the American public, are you better off today than you were four years ago, and redefined politics as something that is in your personal economic interest, that that was a terrible falling off for American democracy. Because in the 18th century, no public servant would have considered that an appropriate question. Because the question was whether the nation as a whole was better off, not whether you personally were better off. And everyone was being asked, as the price of civic virtue, to place their own interests in relation to the common good. And that notion of common good, I think, has been much more contentious in the last 36 years than it was in the years leading up to that. And I think we're a poor democracy because of it. But I think that part of what we see now is just how difficult it is to instill and perpetuate an ethic of reciprocity in a multiracial democracy committed to gender equality. We look, since World War II, at the much more generous um, system of social provision, unemployment compensation, retraining, all sorts of things that the Northern European nations have, and compare ourselves to that. And what we're seeing in the last few years, and becoming increasingly pointed, is that once there are people unlike the people in your nation coming in, as so many refugees are coming in now, and as so many people from other parts of the world are coming into Western Europe, it's a lot harder for people to maintain that sense of generosity and inclusion than it was when you perceived everyone to be just like you. Now, in the United States, from the outset, We've had that kind of division between people who think of themselves as the authentic Americans and others as not authentic Americans. The challenge for us, I think, in 2016 is to expand this conception of what counts as an American so that it can include all the pe- so that it can include all of the people within the nation's boundaries who are citizens and all of the people having equal rights and being part of the same project. That's what the ethic of reciprocity requires. That's what the institutions that we have can work effectively within if we have that shared cultural commitment. That's what I think we're lacking more than anything else. I have a question about this reciprocity because you, you talk about it beginning with the, the New England town meeting. And it's so necessary for democracy to work. And you really emphasize that. I'm wondering, how does reciprocity uh, work 
Does it, does it work on such a mass scale? We've got 350 million people versus this, a New England town meeting, which is face-to-face, right? We can sit here and we can argue things out and work it out, right? Which is very different when you're talking about 350 million people. Can democracy work at the scale that we're at now? It's so far away from the New England town meeting. One of the things that uh, social scientists have been discovering the last couple of decades is that the most important um, solvent of these hatreds, what makes these hatreds soften, is personal interaction. That people were, when people were encountering homosexuality, it was easy to demonize it until you found out that your friend or your um, relative was gay. And then, oh, well, gosh, you know, Charlie's okay. I, that's fine. And same thing with religion, that people could demonize members of other religious groups until they found out that the guy in their bowling club was actually that and that it was okay. And what we're finding now is that the, the most extreme forms of anti-immigrant or anti-gay or anti-black um, sentiment are in places where people don't know people of any of those groups. And so part of what needs to happen, I think, is that we need to have more interaction. In some ways, we're a more segregated country than we were for the civil rights movement. We need more interaction, and that interaction needs to occur among people who are more equal rather than as unequal as people are now. So the increasing inequality since the 1970s, as Adams, Jefferson, and Madison saw, is inimical to democracy because people have a very hard time seeing themselves as sharing something with people who are completely different from themselves in terms of their uh, economic situation. So there are lots of obstacles to what we're trying to achieve now. But to get us back where we started, what we're trying to achieve now is extremely difficult. And no one has ever actually succeeded, I think, in building a multiracial democracy with a commitment to gender equality. And that's what we're trying to do. So I think if my book has any salience for the present moment, it's simply to acknowledge that the problems we face are very deeply rooted in American history, in the social and economic and racial dynamics of American history, and that the solution to those problems, as hard as it's going to be, is not going to happen until we recognize that these tensions are still alive, that we haven't gotten past them and we have to get past them if the ethic of reciprocity is going to operate. Thank you, Jim. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. You can reach me through my website at www.lillianbarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.